have said, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. And we spoke that week about the significance of the new songs that we find in the, in the Scripture. So we're not really going to emphasize that tonight, but I do want to make the point that whenever you see David say, sing a new song, well, let me ask you, what is the significance of that? What is, what is the significance, potentially, when we see David in this call to worship, saying, oh, sing unto the Lord, not an old song, but sing a new song. What could this be, uh, what could this be highlighting, or what is it that this could be emphasizing? Somebody help me out. Somebody contribute tonight. Yes, sir. I was saying that... Uh there's something uh, great happened in David's life. Okay. So there's something significant that has happened in David's life. I think that's probably the most likely reason. I think that's probably the, the reason for the emphasis here. Is that David is coming to a new awareness about some aspect of God and His glory. David has come into a new realization. He's gone, and really hopefully for all of us, the longer we walk with the Lord, we come, we deepen our relationship. We come into new awarenesses and new realizations of His glory. And as a poet... As a musician, what did that prompt in the heart of David? It prompted a, <laughs> you got it, it prompted a new song. If he wasn't a, if he wasn't a, uh, a musician, but he was a painter, it would have it uh, created a new painting. And, and maybe you're a writer, it would have created a new essay or a new statement. And so the point is this, there's an, there should be an expression, an outlet, when God is revealing himself to us in new and fresh ways, of course, through his word, we, we understand that, but also through our, the word in relation to the experiences we're going through in life, there should be an outlet, there should be an expression of this newness of our walk with the Lord. And that's what's happening. Well, as you know, the purpose of our Wednesday night Bible study for the last several months has been to try to link up the expressions of David in the Psalms to the events that we're reading in the life of David. Now, Psalm 96 is really interesting. If you remember, on Sunday, we were back in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. I'd have you travel back there with me. Keep your marker. Uh, keep something in Psalm 96 because we'll be there. But turn back. Let's refresh our memory to what's going on uh, with what's going on in David's life. So back to 1 Chronicles chapter number 13. 1 Chronicles and chapter 13. If you remember, some things happen. You'll begin and uh, David is the king and there's new things happening in the kingdom. And in verse number one, he consults with captains of thousands, hundreds, with every leader. And he says in verse two, if it seems good to you, we want to gather everyone together. So they're going to have this great worship gathering. And now look at verse number three. The purpose of this gathering is to bring what? To bring to bring the ark, to go get the ark of the covenant. And we talked a little bit about what had happened to the ark, but the point was to bring the ark of the covenant. And now, so verses 4 and 5, they decide to go forward with this wonderful plan. And now we come to verse 6. David went up in all Israel to Baala, that is to Kirjath-Jerim, which belongeth to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And we spoke about the significance on Sunday of those statements. And I'd encourage you to go back and catch that message on, on the website. And just to, we spent some time talking about the glory of the Lord 
as represented in the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll follow up on that this coming Sunday as well. But we see that they that they're going to get the ark and the glory of his name and that he is that the ark is called by his name and that that God's presence dwells on the ark of the covenant. But then in verse number seven, we remember this terrible tragedy took place. In verse number seven, they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets. This magnificent worship procession is going on. But when they come to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he smote him because he had put his hand to the ark. Therefore, he died before God. Boy, this all came to a tragic and screeching halt. And we spoke about the significance of that and why. But this affects David in a powerful way, as it, I'm sure it would affect us if you were there. It caused him to stop. Now, look at his first reaction. It says in verse number 12, uh, verse number 11, and verse number 11 says, and David was displeased. Now, displeased, the idea there is he's angry. He's very upset. He's become angry. Why do you think David may have become angry in that moment? I mean, it doesn't tell us entirely why. Um, obviously, it's because the Lord killed Uzzah at that moment. But what is, what is going on, you think, in David's heart at this time? Anybody would have some thoughts on that? What, what is the cause of this anger? This displeasure that he's feeling. Remember, this is all raw. He's going through, he's going to go through some emotions and we don't have a full glimpse of it. But what, tell me, somebody help me out. Well, okay, now we got hands. Cal first. What's that? Right. He's probably thinking, I'm doing everything right. Like, I'm doing this for you, God. What else? Other thoughts? Or was that kind of the gist of what folks were saying? I think that's probably it. I think he's like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Not only does he react with displeasure, but now look at verse number 12. In verse number 12, and David was, what's it say? Afraid of God that day. We've never really seen this aspect of David's life. He's got this fear. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. But I think there's more to it. I think in, yes, Yeah. <laughs> That's actually, I came across that in one of the commentaries I was reading, and that is that he's been publicly humiliated. I mean, he's the king. We're going to bring the ark. Everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. And then this happens. So he's got a lot of, he's got these reasons to be, he's embarrassed, he's angry, and now he's fearful of God. Does he need to be afraid of God in this moment? On the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, no. Why? Anybody, and I, why would I say no, that this is not a 100% rational response for him to be afraid of God on that day? Because I don't think this type of being afraid continues. Yep? Say because the children of Israel had been on top of it, they would have 
Right. This isn't as if God was being capricious or, or vindictive. The point is, God told them how to do this. They had it in their history. When, when all the law was given, they, they, he should have known this. So we see these attitudes from David. But as with most things in life, and this is really not the lesson tonight, but as with most things in life, if we would just slow down a little bit, when something happens, when something happens that's not according to your plan or not what you expected or you don't feel that God, you don't understand why God did something, sometimes the best response is, well, what do you think? Just wait. Just be still for a little while. Don't rush to a new decision or don't rush. And that's exact. David doesn't. What does he do? He completely puts the brakes on the process. He just stops. And they send the ark where? To whose house? Do you remember? Obed-Edom. Obed, as I said, famous Bible character, Obed-Edom. He gets the Ark of the Covenant. And it says in verse number 14, now this is what I talk about with time. Look at verse number 14. And the Ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. So three months transpire. David obviously has some time to do some processing of what's going on and to do some evaluation and do some study of the scriptures. And in the meantime, God shows his favor. And God says, well, look, listen, I want to show you that my desire is not to curse you. It is to bless you. So he displays that and everybody knows. And there's a, there's a display in the house of Obed-Edom like, wow, things are going well for Obed-Edom. We spoke a little bit about that on Sunday as well. But the point is now, David has, has had time to evaluate. And you will find, and if you study the, the verses in between, you're going to find that David says, as he gets ready, because what's going to happen now is after three months, he's going to say, all right, let's try this again. But this time, just let the Levites carry the ark. Because they're the ones, just, and we'll see that, we'll look at that on Sunday. He, has, he gives new instruction for how it's going to be. Why? Because he's not afraid anymore, but he is fearful. You know, what, you know what I mean by that? It's not doublespeak. I'm saying he's got a healthy reverential fear of God, but not in the same way where, he, where he's angry, confused, and just afraid to do anything. Now he's got a reverential, proper understanding and a proper fear that he's going to rejoice, and we're going to have a celebration this coming Sunday as we look at the ark coming into Jerusalem. There's going to be a, a celebration about it. But David's had time to correct his heart, to, to reset and get focused. You're like, okay, Ethan, what does any of that have to do with Psalm 96? Because we didn't have a heading on Psalm 96 like, the Psalm of David after the ark was taken up. We don't have that. Sometimes we get that we don't. But it is interesting. If you will notice this, in your Bible, turn a few pages forward to 1 Chronicles 16. We'll be looking at this this coming Sunday. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse number 1, it says, So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. Whoa! So a lot has transpired in the middle, but what have we come to now? What have they done? They've brought the ark. They've brought the ark. Now, skip down to verse 7. Then, on that day, Verse number 7, chapter 16. Then on that day, David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord 
into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. We have a psalm recorded in this passage. Now, there's a lot here. Verse 8 through 13 is a stanza. Verses 14 through 18, 19 through 22. But the stanza that begins in verse number 23, the stanza that begins in verse number 23 is a, is a parallel to Psalm 96. What you find in verses 23 on down is a parallel to, to Psalm 96. Notice this. It's not a word for word, but they're very close. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Well, uh, we'll see that in a minute. Just kind of make a mental note of these things. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That line we're going to talk about. I'm really excited to get to that line in a few minutes. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth, for the world also shall be stable, that it be not moved. And there's, there's, oh, we could keep reading, 31. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let men say among the nations, the Lord reigneth. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the fields rejoice in all that is therein. Then shall the trees of the wood sing out at the presence of the Lord, because he cometh to judge the earth. That, those 10 or 11 verses are a parallel to what we're going to see in Psalm 96, which indicates to us Psalm 96 is written, it is composed at some point between the Ark of the Covenant going to the house of Obed-Edom and the return of the Ark to Jerusalem. At some point in between there, God has worked on David's heart. And as David prepares for this wonderful celebration, not of, not of any longer being afraid of what happened to, to Uzzah, but now as he prepares, he wants to prepare the people, and, and he's writing down this psalm ahead of the ceremony that he knows is going to take place, we have it recorded in Psalm 96. So let's take a few minutes and let's work our way through this psalm. Just 12 verses. Psalm 96. Let's turn back there. Psalm 96. Verses 1 through 3 are the first section that we're going to look at. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among the people. Look at that and you, and you tell me, what are some emphases that you see in that, like if there's a if there's some if in those three verses, if there's a if there's a theme that's repeated or something you see as an emphasis, I've got one that I think is a main emphasis. There's probably you could probably come up with a couple others, but let's see if we land in the same place. What are some emphases and look at it in your text? What are some emphases in verses one through three? OK, so there's singing. There's a call to singing. There's something that appears a couple of times, an idea. 
So that we're calling for his glory, declare his glory. That's significant. In fact, I titled the message, A Song for the Glory of the Lord. What else do we see here? Yep. So letting other people know about his glory. In fact, you see that in verse, notice in verse number one, all the earth. Verse number two, day to day. Verse number three, among the heathen, among who else? All people. So this idea, so what I put is, as we're thinking about, I just get a few simple points as we outline this psalm a little bit. And there'd be different ways to outline it. But the first thing I'm seeing as a theme in verses 1 through 3 as we think about his glory, the glory and the grandeur and the magnificence of the Lord, his glory is universal. It's universal. And so it's interesting in this time, David is writing in the grand scheme of the world, what kind of impact do the people of God have? I mean, think about it. What is their place in the world? In the, in the scheme of the, of the world, what place do the, does Israel have? How would you describe them geopolitically? Yeah, at the moment in time of the writing of the scripture. How do you describe Israel? Well, okay. I'm not sure... I'm thinking their place in the world. Like if the United Nations were to gather. Yeah, I mean, they may be small, but I don't know if I have any understanding of like what the world is like There's a whole Chinese empire that goes back into the BCs. There's a whole Babylonian empire. There's, there are major world powers. And then there are these little tribes on the coast of the Mediterranean, right? I mean, they're like, they're, they're these tribes, nomadic tribes people all fighting with each other. Sometimes, they're, sometimes even the children of Israel fighting with themselves. They're fighting with Philistines. They're, they are a very insignificant group of people. I mean, super insignificant compared to the major world empires that are coming onto the stage, coming onto the scene. Very insignificant. Now, they're going to rise to prominence very quickly and very shortly, but they're, they're an insignificant people. Now, he says, though, he's, he says, we may be an inf insignificant people, but the glory of our God, the whole world ought to know about it. Because while and God even said, I chose you not because you were the greatest people, but because you were the least, because you were the least they do not, they, they are not a major world force or a major world power. But, but David stands up boldly and he says this, Hey, everybody in the whole world, everyone everywhere, you all need to sing to the Lord. And it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, signifying his specific name, Yahweh or Jehovah. He says, Listen, the whole, the, the, the vast reaches of the world, did they, had they ever even heard the name of the Lord? They didn't know his name, but David says the whole world ought to know. There's, I, I put down three, three things here about God's glory is universal. You notice in verse number one, it says all the earth. Verse number two, it says day to day. And verse number three, all the people. 
So His glory is universal. His glory ought to be seen everywhere, every day, by everyone. Everywhere, every day, by everyone. David doesn't care how insignificant the sound of his voice may be. He, he wants people to know how significant the name of his God is. Wow. Is there application for us today in that? Certainly is. There certainly is. Whereas our place at times individually or even collectively may be insignificant, we serve a God whose glory is universal and should be proclaimed to the nations. Some have used, some have uh, considered this psalm to be the missionary, a missionary psalm as well, and I think there's a lot of application to that. But as David reflects on the glory of, the, of God, he draws our attention in the first three verses to how universal God's glory is. Now, we pick up that, but we kind of shift themes a little bit in verses 4 down through verse number 5. He says, let me, let me elaborate on what I'm talking about. Let me explain a little bit more why the whole world universally ought to know about God. Jehovah. Because the Lord, because Yahweh is what? Great. And greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all what? Gods. Gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord, the Lord made the heavens. Now, obviously, in your Bible, you have, the, you have gods as a lowercase g. There's no such distinction in the original language. That's to help us in, in English understand what we're talking about. The word that is often translated God in the Hebrew is Elohim, right? You've, how many of you are familiar with that? Elohim. But Elohim is not a name. Elohim is a description, and what Elo Elohim, in fact, could be used to describe God. It could be used to describe angelic beings. And in this case, Elohim is regarding the false gods or the false uh, idols of the day. It was just in the, in the Middle Eastern concept of a powerful spirit being, the word was Elohim, speaking of the powerful spirit realm. And that's why, that's the significance of saying what, this, imagine it this way. What, what he's saying is our Elohim. His name is Yahweh. And he is above all El Elohim. He is above all of them. And it, it's the same in English, but you get this, the significance there. That, that our God, his name is Jehovah. His name is the Lord. And he is above all of the other gods. All of them. Interestingly enough, some of the, the gods are, when we talk about those gods, are we talking entirely about imaginary deities? How many think yes or no? We're talking about imaginary deities. You don't think so? Anybody else? I think it's a yes and a no, to be honest with you. I think in some instances, we're talking about a dumb idol. We're actually going to see that in verse number, uh, well, we see it there, verse number five. All these Elohims are idols. But also, it's 
It's not. There, there, were, there are real false gods that really exist. When you talk about the false gods, you see the concept in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, you are talking about demonic spirit forces that have power. Remember the gods of Egypt? Were those imaginary gods? Were the gods of Egypt imaginary? You're, now everybody's afraid to answer. <laughs> I said, yep. They certainly weren't. How do we know? What did they do? They did miracles. They turned water to blood. They made snakes out of sticks. There's a, there are real, in other words, there, when it says God is above all gods, it's not just talking about imaginary deities. He's talking about the fact that there are all of these cultures, they worshiped spirit, they, they had a worship of the spiritual realm, but it was false. Not false in the sense of imaginary, but false the same way that the Antichrist is a false, is a, is a false Christ. Because they are trying to, as Satan said, I will exalt myself. The, the false Elohim are trying to compete with the one true and living God, with the Lord above all. The supreme and high and mighty one. And David is saying, we're just trying to dive into a, a Middle Eastern concept as the people are hearing this. Because they've got all of their, their polytheistic deities. And they're saying, well, this is the God of, this is the God, well, what, what kind of gods would they have? You know, right? This is the God of the sun. Or this is the God of the moon. Or what, what other kinds of things would they worship? This is the God of the rivers. This is the, God, the, the Egyptians had tons, the frog god, the, a lot of the, anyway, I'm way off. I'm getting way off here. The point is this, all these nations are like, well, we've got a powerful God. Whatever, while I'm at it. So there's another funny story about the ark. Way back in the earlier days in 1 Samuel, the, in 1 Samuel, the Philistines captured the ark of the covenant. And they went into the house of their God. Do you know what his name was? Anybody? This is a little Bible trivia here. Man, you guys are good. They took the ark and they brought it into the house of Dagon. And what were they saying? What was their statement? Their state, what, somebody tell me, what are they saying when they take the ark and they put it in the house of Dagon? Our fish God is pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're saying. They're saying, God of the Hebrews, bow before Dagon. And what happened? They came in the next day, and what had happened to Dagon? Boom, he crashed down, fell down on his face, and they were like, all right, let's get the ark out of here. Let's get it out of here. And that happened. So this is the idea of the day. This is the culture of the day. There are like, oh, you know, God, we have gods. And David says, no. His glory is universal, but now his glory is supreme. His glory is supreme, and he will not share his glory with anyone else. He will not share his glory with anyone else. It says in verse 4, the Lord is great. He is to be feared above all gods. Don't you think when David saw what happened to Uzzah, he thought, you know, I better put a little something in this psalm about fearing the Lord. He is to be feared. In fact, a lot of people think Psalm 97 is a um, companion psalm to this. And he says in verse 3, A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. He says he is to be feared above all gods. Verse 5, For all the gods of the nations are idols. In other words, there's a contrast here. They're all idols. 
Idols have to be what? They have to be created. But while your gods and your representation of your gods, you had to create them. David could have said, you created your idols, but God created you. But he wants to make it even more extreme. So he says, you created your little idols. But Jehovah, he created the universe. He created all of it. He is the supreme creator of all. Good stuff, huh? His glory is to is supreme. He is the creator of the heavens. Verse number six now. In verses six through ten, so we, I've got a couple of themes. First, it was his glory is universal. In the first three verses, in the, in the in verses four through five, his glory is supreme. Now, verses six through ten, his glory is to be worshipped. This is the response. Now, there's a response. I'm going to spend the, most of my time on verse number nine. I haven't given myself enough time, so we're going to move through some of it quickly, and I want to save time for verse nine. So you see this response. So because of who God is, how, do, how must we respond? The word in verse number, uh, well, we should read verse six because we skipped that. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Make a note of that statement, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Make a note of that and link that to verse number 9. We'll come to that in a minute. Just make a note that we're going to link verse number 6 with verse number 9. Now, verse 7 is the response, and it begins with an imperative. And the imperative statement, the imperative word is the word what? The imperative is the word give. Give, that is, can be translated ascribe or make a statement of praise. Give, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, all you families and all the places of the earth. Give the Lord glory and strength. Obviously, give is not providing him with, with glory and strength. It's giving recognition, giving glory to his glory and strength, giving worship. But I do like the idea, I do like this word because there is an active component. So as we ascribe God this glory, we're doing it as a gift to him. I think that's that's great, great word. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So there's always a, there should always be a response. And we know, we spoke about this on Sunday, that worship is not just something that we, that we offer in a worship service, but worship is the giving and the offering of our very lives in worship to him. I don't have more time to talk about that because we're, we're running late. Verse number nine, though. Oh, worship the Lord. In the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Worship the Lord, he says, in the beauty of holiness. How many of you have you've heard that before? You've heard, you're familiar with that verse. I was too. I always enjoyed that verse. I always thought, yeah, that's such a that's such wonderful, a wonderful statement. You know? Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But you know what I never did? 
I never took time to be like, so what does that really mean? Like a lot of the, a lot of the Psalms, I find that to be true in my life. It's like we have, they speak to us in a way and we're like, yeah, and it resonates with us on an emotional level. But then I'm like, I got to get up in front of people and tell them what that actually, I got to say something. I can't just feel it for them. I have to explain it. And I'm so glad that I took the time to study it and understand it. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Does anybody know what, what, the, what this, maybe you have already studied this out before me. What is the significance of that statement? The be, what is the beauty of holiness? Anybody? That was that a hand up or like you're going up and then you pulled it back. You're like, <laughs> we going to say something? Gotcha. The beauty of holiness. You're just going to take a wild guess? That's okay. We'll take wild guesses. So walking in, walking in a yeah, pure, uh, walking in the spirit and, and according to his commands is a form of worship and it's a beautiful way to worship. I'm going to get there, actually. That's not the literal. I think that's an application. It's not the literal, but that's a good, that's a really good application of it. Yeah. That's really good too. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's really good. Let me give you the literal. And then, because both of these are accurate, actually, extrapolations of the truth here. But what were you going to say? So as I looked at this, I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all, but in my study of this, the phrase in the beauty of holiness, there is actually some discussion about possible, possibly how this could be translated. The beauty of holiness is actually the most open-ended translation because some people believe that this should be translated. In fact, I have a note right in my Bible in the margin. Do you have a note? Well, you have the same, yeah, we have the same uh, study Bible, basically. And the note says, or it could be translated, in the glorious sanctuary. What would that be a reference to? If we said, worship the Lord in the glorious or beautiful sanctuary, what would that be a reference to? The tabernacle or the temple. Or I also read that some people, because of the, the word, it could also be, Worship the Lord, get this, in the holy garments. What would that be a reference to? The holy garments, what would that be a reference to? Go ahead, I can't hear you. The priestly garment, that there's a priestly robe. In both cases, in either case, I think either is a possibility here. And that's why, so we have this translation that allows for either or. The idea is the beauty of holiness. In other words, 
At where did the people of God in this time, where did they come to worship the Lord? They're gathering in, first of all, in what city? Jerusalem. And then specifically in what location? The tabernacle, which would later become the temple. And as you walked in, every single part of that tabernacle and temple was designed to be beautiful. Beautiful. In fact, when you left your little humble tent and you walked to the tabernacle, what kind of things did you see? You saw a magnificent tent made of different colors. Do you remember that? We could do a whole study on the tabernacle. But they made the, the, the coverings of badger skins and they dyed them different colors. And there's a beautiful veil that separates the holy place. And then all of the all of the the, the furniture, like even on the ark, well, first there's a laver, and that laver is coated in what? Yeah, it's a bronze laver. And then the candlesticks, the candlesticks are coated in, in gold. Where in the world did a Hebrew worshiper ever see gold and bronze and beautiful? When did they ever see that? Well, I'll tell you when they saw that. When they came to what? When they came to worship. When they came to worship, and I believe what's happening here is David is saying, because remember, they're gathering the ark. They're bringing the ark. It's coming into, this, into the tabernacle, into the sanctuary. I think David is saying, think about the beauty, the beauty. Everything from the furniture in the tabernacle to the beautiful garments that the priest would wear the worship of the Lord is a beautiful experience. It's beautiful. Now, because of that, in the New Testament, some people have misinterpreted how we should respond to that. And so what did they do? Particularly like in the Roman Catholic tradition. So they made their buildings what? Beautiful and ornate and covered in gold. Why? Because they would justify and say, well, we're copying it after the, after the you know, Old Testament. They also have, they have the priestly, you know, all the pomp and all the circumstance. But actually in the New Testament, where is the beauty of holiness seen? It's still seen in the sanctuary. But this is not the sanctuary. This is not the sanctuary. Where is the sanctuary? Right here. It's not here. But the sanctuary is here. It's among us. The Bible says that ye, we looked at this in, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, ye, you all together are the temple of God. And then elsewhere, the Bible teaches that you individually in your body are the temple of God. So as a Christian, your body is a sanctuary. And as a Christian, your local church is a sanctuary. And think about this now. As people would come in and they'd look around at all the furniture and all the beauty in the tabernacle, they'd say, wow, this reminds me of the beauty of our God, of the splendor. And they'd look around and they'd see this and they'd see that, wow, this is the worship of our God is beautiful. Well, what is supposed to happen in the church is people look around the church and say, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this awesome? 
And there is a priestly garment, by the way. We do wear a priestly garment. Colossians, can you give me the Colossians reference real quick? Colossians chapter 3, look at verse number 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. That word put on is literally the idea of putting on clothes. Some, some translate this, clothe yourselves. Put on as the elect, the chosen of God, holy and beloved. You put on a beautiful garment, but it's not made of silk or, or any material. It's made of things like mercy and kindness and humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance for one another, forgiveness. Verse number 14, and above all these things, clothe yourselves, put on love, charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body. Be ye thankful. Ephesians 5. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it so he could present it to himself a what? A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The beauty of holiness. As we think about all the glory of the Lord, I'll finish with this thought. The beauty of his holiness is to be seen in this sanctuary and in your sanctuary and among us in our sanctuary. Let all of the world, you invite a friend, you invite a neighbor, oh, let's pray that maybe they come into this building, they don't notice anything about the building, but they notice the beauty of the people of God and their worship of Him. I was really excited to share that with you because that passage really spoke to me. So thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us if you joined online. We're going to say goodnight. After I pray, we'll say goodnight to the online crowd and then We'll have our prayer time here together. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the truths of your word. We're thankful for the, um, the glory of your name, that you are greater than, than anything we could, any false truth or false God that we could worship. And we thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be a beautiful representation of your holiness. Help us to reflect that glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.